Osiris. From Osiris Media, this is Beautiful Garbage. A look at how America unleashed punk rock on the world. I'm Kevin Hogan, and we will be tracing the development of punk rock from American garages and bars to England in the mid to late 70s and back, looking at the important figures in their work. Today, in episode two, Cultural Treason, we will continue to follow the social and cultural trends that fueled punk's creation as a reaction to society at large, looking to punk's other two cornerstones, the Stooges and the New York Dolls, before heading down to the Bowery to meet a man named Hell. As America entered the 1970s, the stage was set for a complete re-evaluation of American culture. The 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment launched the major thrust across the border May 1st. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Houston, we've had a problem. I saw people dropping to the ground, and then I fell to the ground also. <laughs> I couldn't walk anymore. The guard, under the pressure of a rock-throwing attack, panicked and fired its weapons indiscriminately, killing four people. On one side, the hippies had traded in their revolutionary spirit and decided to work within the system, buying into the corporatization of music. embracing a watered-down facsimile of the counterculture that was marketed to middle America, in effect becoming culturally acceptable, even setting the tone for popular art and music. The other side found a growing underground that stood in defiance to what was seen as cultural treason. As corporations took over the means of music production and distribution, they also dictated what would and wouldn't be heard, and for the most part, it was a very homogeneous sound designed to generate maximum profits. Sylvie and Sylvian from the New York Dolls explains. And it was a lot of those walls that you couldn't get a deal because if you, if you couldn't sell records like the Beatles, well, forget about it. But if you couldn't play like Jeff Beck on the guitar, forget about it. You, know, you had no chance. And, and everything was made, you know, music was being made by the companies. Not anymore, not anymore by kids in the basement or in some garage. And it's more business. Rock no longer questioned societal norms or pushed boundaries, which left many young people without a voice. They were angry that the music that was supposed to speak for them had become a mouthpiece for forces that did not have their best interest at heart. Still, there were glimmers of hope that real rock and roll was alive in the mean streets of New York. Lou Reed and John Cale had been on a collision course almost from the Velvet Underground's inception. While Lou Reed was busy trying to capture reality with his lyrics, John Cale was going in the opposite direction. 
taking reality and bending it through a lens of abstraction, dissonance, and noise. This would eventually come to a head, and his 1968 clues, Lou Reed fired John Cale after finishing their second album, White Light, White Heat. Ultimately, several factors, including Lou's need to have complete control and the album being another commercial flop, instigated it. Kale wanted the band to hold the course and dive deeper into the avant-garde with songs like Sister Ray. But Reed wanted to write pop songs, deranged pop songs, but pop songs nonetheless. Lou made a, uh, an ultimatum that either he or John would have to go. And Sterling, he... He called Sterling and I, and we met him at a coffee shop or something. And he told us this, you know, he just couldn't work with John anymore, and we could either stay with him or go with John, whatever. Um, so basically, John was kicked out. The Velvet Underground would continue on, but without the tension Kale provided, a precursor to the solo career Lou Reed would launch in the early 70s. Kale went on to producing Nico and guesting on numerous other albums before being tapped by Elektra to produce a band from Detroit called The Stooges. The thinking was that only Kale could capture this hard and distorted sound, and he did it masterfully even though we wouldn't hear his mixes until the next millennium. What I was concerned about with the studios was having seen the show, the volatility of that show live, and how great it was, and the, 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 the twisted emotions that go on through the show. And one minute you're being threatened, another minute you're being embraced. Yeah, I mean, really wonderful entertainment. How was I going to get that on a record? Yeah, I guess. And um, we had 10 days. Whatever it was we were going to get on the record, we had 10 days. And... The band came in, set up, slammed it. Then time to do the vocals. He comes up to me, hands me a sheaf of papers. And I said, what's that? He said, the lyrics. And I said, whoa. And off he went, hit all the vocals. And we got on the mixing it. I mean, very professional. I hold myself tight. As much as the Stooges were a band, they were really a vehicle for Iggy Pop. He is the blueprint for singers like Stiv Bader's, Johnny Rotten, and Henry Rollins. With the Stooges, it was more about the show, the off-the-charts energy, the crazy antics on stage, than about playing music that was in any way intellectually challenging. If I didn't make a complete break with the music that was going on now, uh, I wasn't ever going to make it as a musician. So we had to stop, stop what was going on and make up something new. And the answer is it was done with drugs, attitude, youth, and a record collection. Their popularity started to grow simultaneously with the MC5, making Detroit the epicenter of a new music that would give birth to punk. 
With Ron Ashton on guitar, brother Scott Ashton on drums, and Dave Alexander on bass, the Stooges unleashed their feedback-laden improvisation in 69. It's a, some, sort of a, some sort of a sound that happens when the two of them, the two brothers, are at the root of it. And you got the stringed instrument, then the drums, and that provokes something in me that I that I just don't get anywhere else. Iggy's growl on the opening track lets you know this is something radically new, dark and dirty, just a few steps further from the 60s than even the MC5 had gone. Today considered more influential, their playing was nowhere near the level of the MC5. The thing that makes them the third part of Punk's foundation was Iggy's lyrics. Not political, not a call to arms, but rather self-absorbed meditations on nihilism. They also steered clear of the Dylan-esque trappings of many of Reed's lyrics and became the basis for a thousand punk songs, all while giving a big middle finger to the remnants of the flower power era. I Want to Be Your Dog is the most enduring song from the 1969 album. It was from left field and made self-aggrandizing commonplace. With the overt BU influence of Kale's manic single-note piano riff, this was the first true salvo of what would become the many-faceted jewel that is punk rock. The Stooges would continue to tighten their sound, but like the MC5 and Velvet Underground, only lasted a few years into the 70s. The biggest issue with all these bands was that they were unmarketable. There were structures in place in, in the 60s. The way you got, you know, the way you got records played on the, on the radio. So the structures were changing. It was all based around radio and whatever, you know, it was really difficult to get songs to break out. There weren't any hit singles, and their influence was under the radar of American culture at large. This is also true of the last piece of Punk's foundation we will look at, the New York Dolls. A federal appeals court reverses the convictions of the five Chicago 7 defendants found guilty, but says they may be tried again. Chief defense lawyer William Kunstler. 
I am gratified that, that although they reversed on many grounds, that they would have reversed alone on the conduct of the judge and the prosecutors. In Geneva today, the United States and the Soviet Union opened the second phase of the strategic arms limitation talks, the so-called SALT talks. This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning, armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. The gunmen shot dead two Israelis and are now holding 20 athletes and six officials as hostages. The cost of living rose by three-tenths of a percent in October, while the purchasing power of the average worker declined by the same amount. Fifteen Americans were killed in action last week, but only two deaths were tabulated in time for the official report. In late 1971, a fledgling group that may or may not have been named actress hired on a new singer, David Johansson. And by 1972, they had created a new sound, similar to glam rock, but with a harder edge. It was a mixture of the Rolling Stones' bravado and David Bowie's androgyny, and it was soon turning heads. Named after the New York Doll Hospital, a store that repaired broken toys, they took the basic formula and espoused the same sensibilities as the Detroit sound. But the dolls added a gender-bending flamboyant stage presence and hit on something new. So I love those records because those records got everything else, you know, started, broke down the walls and, you know, gave everybody like the Patti Smiths and the, the Talking Heads and the Blondies and the Ramones and all the New York bands and, and which after then was influenced by the, you know, they influenced and we also influenced because we were on television in England in 1973. Well, who was watching us in, in, on those old English shows is like, the, you know, the Joe Strummers of the next generation to be and stuff. And, um, and the Morseys and... But did you know it? No, I didn't know. The effect of this androgynous look carried on through the 70s and beyond, inspiring both punks and what would become known as hair metal. They lived extravagantly, exemplifying the glam rock ethic that David Bowie had been exploring. They became a favorite of people connected to the factory scene, a strange extension of the Velvets. By 1973, they had been signed to Mercury and released their self-titled debut. Produced by Todd Rundgren, the album was not a commercial success and opinions were mixed. Most famously, when the Dolls won both Best New Group and Worst New Group, 
in the same Cream Magazine poll. And uh, we learned our craft from performance, performing, 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 one after the other. You know, so we, we, we turn out, uh, you know, through, we found out that there was other people that were like us too. Sadly, the end was near. As the cool kids in New York moved their sights to bands like Television and Blondie and clubs like CBGB's. But the Dolls' influence was wide and large. Kiss. Guns N' Roses, The Dam, and The Cure all owe a big debt to the New York Dolls. But perhaps no one owes a bigger debt than the Sex Pistols. Malcolm McLaren, the man behind the Sex Pistols, briefly managed the Dolls, and the angry guitars and shouted vocals would become the blueprint for his next project. In 1973, New York was a city that was collapsing from the weight of rampant crime and unemployment. Those who could flee the city for the suburbs had, and the city had become a wasteland, but also an emblem to the children growing up in the suburbs of danger and freedom. It was alluring, and going there was a way to rebel against the sanitized world of television and TV dinners they lived in. I don't have to be here, you know. I don't have to show up here. With my vast financial holdings, I could have been basking in the sun in Florida. This is just a hobby for me. Nothing, you hear? A hobby. When two rock aficionados, fanzine publisher Andy Chernoff and critic Richard Meltzer, teamed up with the double guitar punch of Scott Top 10 Kempner and Ross the Boss Funicello, along with ex-wrestler Handsome Dick Manitoba on vocals, the Dictators were born. Taking a little from the New York Dolls, a little from Iggy, and sprinkling it liberally with pop culture irreverence, they pushed rock full on into punk. I think what we were is there was a period where the New York Dolls were finishing and the Stooges were not really playing much and the MC5 were not really playing much and there was a little space. I call it connective tissue. In 1975, they released what is considered by many the first punk album, The Dictators Go Girl Crazy. I just remember being drunk and messed up and, and being the secret weapon and being called in to really give the record extra character and insanity and over-the-topness and... Produced by Blue Oyster Cult Sandy Perlman and Maury Klingman, it was as in-your-face as the New York Dolls or Stooges, but it also had a sense of humor. The lyrics took on pop culture and included songs about wrestling, fast food, watching TV, and of course, rock and roll's holy trinity, beer, dope, and cars. He had a punk attitude, some punk songs, 
and a, a, a snobby punk part to us. But did I think that we were the main representative of punk? No. The almost comic book nature of the dictators in the New York Dolls was seen as a distraction by some, and there was a desire for the power and volume of the Dolls and Dictators, but with a more underground look. Enter Richard Hell, whose look and attitude would change pop culture over the next few years. He was the antithesis to the New York Dolls look, more 50s tough guy than uptown glam. With spiked hair, stapled shirts, and ripped pants, he would become the archetype for what is called punk fashion. Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell were high school friends who had moved to New York independently before meeting up and forming a band, the Neon Boys, in late 1972. Billy Ficka filled out the lineup, and they lasted almost a year before breaking up and reinventing themselves as television with second guitarist Richard Lloyd. The only music that um, exists of that, of that lineup is a few tapes we made in a four-track studio at the point where we were giving up. We were restless, you know, because the Neon Boys seemed really promising, but we spent a year trying to find the uh, guitar player. And um, when we broke up, you know, it was really frustrating because we had all these ideas. We just weren't able to find the fourth member of the band. So Tom and I were working in the same bookstore. And uh, there was another guy working there who um, said he'd met a guitar player. And uh, we auditioned the guy, and uh, he seemed competent, and that was Richard Lloyd. And um, so we were able to start a band. With communist forces only a few miles from the center of Saigon, the order to evacuate American nationals is given. The rich are staying rich and getting fatter, the poor are getting poorer, and millions are going hungry. Broadway and Times Square look like something out of the theater of the absurd. Violent crime is up 13%. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. By early 1974, their manager, Terry Ork, who was part of Warhol's factory scene, had secured them a gig at a dive bar called CBGB. On March 31st of that year, they played their first gig, and for the next year, they bounced back and forth between CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, the home of many Velvet Underground shows, until they became a fixture at CBGBs through 1975. <laughs> Thank you. 
was living with Terry in Chinatown, and he said, there's a guitarist that does what you do. And I said, well, what the hell do I do? You know, how dare you tell me what I do? He says, well, you play guitar by yourself. And there's this guitarist who plays by himself, and he's going to play at Reno Sweeney's. And we took a cab up there and went in and met Richard uh, Myers, Richard Hell, at the door with his girlfriend, and we all took a table. He played three songs, leaned over to Terry, and I said, forget about putting a band together around me. Put him and me together, you'll have the band you're looking for. I remember going out to see some bands in around 72, I think it was like the New York Dolls and a couple other bands, which I didn't care for at all. And I thought, well, maybe I should put together a band because I could use some of this kind of stuff I was writing along with music and the whole thing. And that's how that eventually became television, I guess you could say, kind of thing. Television were the child of VU's pop sensibilities and their avant-garde noise mixed with the psychedelic stylings of the MC5. Their debut single in 1975, Little Johnny Jewel, is a perfect example of this. Released on a label their manager created, Orc Records, the song was in two parts lasting over nine minutes. It was raw, but even then their sound had begun to become more refined with the vocals getting tighter and the dual punch of Lloyd and Verlaine's guitars weaving a tense soundscape. spot was Richard Hell. He was a mediocre bassist with no desire to practice or improve, and this led to friction in the band and with Hilly Crystal. Hilly told their manager Terry Ork that he was done booking television, and Ork had to assure him that they were practicing. But that one for me was part of the um, beauty of it. The message was anybody can do it. For me, uh -huh. that was a really important part of the message. Internally, there was an issue with Hell's stage presence, which consisted of frenzy jumping around, and by late 1975, he had left the band. A one-time member of Blondie, Fred Smith was brought in to replace Hell, and the classic lineup of television was cemented. Tom thought, because I was not really competent bass player, and, and also just my sort of style on stage, he really wanted to kind of like suppress me, you know. He, he, he didn't want me moving. He, he, uh, it just became very tense. Um, so I broke off. There was no center of the band because Billy was crazy and Richard was loopy and Tom and I were trying to get, keep
keep the songs going and soloing and all of the rest. And it was fabulous. And in the demo, Richard's songs were like, you know, getting knocked out. And he was so pissed. A little while later, you know, he got pushed out and he quit. And another final straw was when Malcolm McLaren wanted to manage us and we said, absolutely not. And he, Richard really wanted to, us to take that offer. And Malcolm got, really wanted a, a tele, television. And I thought, you know, look, he's a shyster. He's a con man, but we'll all be millionaires, you know. Television was the best band in the world. This can be seen as the point where punk split into two camps that would eventually manifest themselves as hardcore and new wave in the 80s. Hell joined the Heartbreakers with former New York Dallas Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan before eventually forming Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Television was signed to Elektra. They released two landmark albums, Marquee Moon and Adventure, but found little commercial success leading to their breakup in 1978. It wasn't until the early 80s in New Wave that Marky Moon really began to make sense, often cited as an inspiration to those same New Wavers. Next episode, we return to the Bowery in Lower Manhattan and recount how punk conquered the world from its true epicenter. I'm Kevin Hogan, and this is Beautiful Garbage, presented by Osiris Media. For more podcasts that connect you deeply to the music you love, check out OsirisPod.com. service.